All right, well, uh, good morning. My name is Angie David. I am the new Health Ministry Director for the North America Division, and it's really a pleasure to be here with you. I just started my role in April of this year, and prior to this, I was working in the, on the island of Guam I was, as a dietitian at our, our Adventist clinic there, and also I was uh, directing our wellness center, wellness programs there. So what I'm going to do this afternoon is share with you a mission story, a mission report from the island of Guam. The reason, one reason why is because I just love mission stories. And I think we need to hear more and more about the amazing things the Lord is doing throughout the world. I miss mission, report, mission reports. Um, and so I want to share that with you, but also because I want to sh uh, share with you some of the dreams and visions the Lord has placed in my heart for health ministries for this, uh, for this current term. And much of that has been informed from my experience on Guam. So I want to share that with you hopefully so that we can learn how we can work together to accomplish God's mission. Now this morning what we want to do is first of all lay our foundation for health evangelism. We want to learn the principles of how to do health evangelism. And we know that Christ's method alone will give true success. Now, we know that, that quote very well. We know it's from Ministry of Healing, page 143. But have we spent the time to look at the details of that? Maybe not all of us have. And so what I want to do this morning is actually look through the Word of God through looking at Christ as an example to glean the principles of health evangelism. So we're having a Bible study. I hope you don't mind. And then we're also going to spend some time just getting very practical. Some practical things that will help us organize our evangelism efforts, our health evangelism efforts. So, Thank you for being with us this morning. And of course, let's start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful to be your children. Lord, you have called each of us out of darkness into your marvelous light so that we may show forth your praises. And as we spend time today considering and contemplating your work, teach us how to be the missionary that you want us to be. Give us wisdom, give us strength, give us clear insight, Lord, that we may learn more about you and how to share you more effectively with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I'm not sure if that is, there we go. Okay. This is from evangelism. Page 515, the principles of health reform are found where? In the Word of God. So, it's very important that we are students of the Word of God primarily. Of course, we want to learn 
true health principles, scientific methodologies, proven scientifically, spirit of prophecy, verified, certified. We want to know science of health, but everything must be founded on the Word of God. And so this is why we're starting today with a study of the Word of God. Let's look at the, the Gospel Commission. This is in Councils to the Church, page 308. The Divine Commission needs no reform. Health needs reform, but not the Divine Commission of God. Christ's way of presenting truth cannot be improved on. Hmm. The Savior gave the disciples practical lessons, teaching them how to work in such a way as to make souls glad in the truth. Do, you, do we want sad, healthy people? That's not true health. We want happy, glowing from the inside out. We want to bring people to a fullness of health, and that includes being joyful in the truth. He sympathized with the weary, the heavy laden, the oppressed. He fed the hungry and healed the sick. Constantly he went about doing good. By the good he accomplished, by his loving words and kindly deeds, he interpreted the gospel to men. Wow. What people, what we all need, what the world is dying for more than anything else is a lack of knowledge. And our actions, our health ministry, our health evangelism is a way to help interpret the gospel to them. And it's done very practically. It's by demonstration. Christ's work in behalf of man is not finished. Hmm. It continues today. Certainly we know this from our sanctuary, understanding of the heavenly sanctuary, but going on, in like manner, his ambassadors are to preach the gospel and to reveal his pitying love for lost and perishing souls. By unselfish interest in those who need help, they are to give a practical demonstration of the truth of the gospel. We need to help our communities understand what the gospel of Christ truly is. And it's done by giving a practical demonstration. And this is where health evangelism comes in. I, I like here, towards the end of this paragraph, do medical missionary work. Thus, you will gain access to the hearts of people, and the way will be prepared for a more decided proclamation of the truth. Do medical missionary work. And that's what we all want to, to do, right? We know in Testimonies, Volume 7, Mrs. White says, The time has come for every member of the church to be a medical missionary. So Christ is the originator and the best. In Manuscript 22, 1898, 
it, it reads, Christ was the most successful physician the world has ever known. Ever. <laughs> the most successful. He was the best. And so we want to learn from the best, don't we? Going on, Jesus Christ is the originator of all the missionary work done in our world. He is the originator and the best. He worked miracles to heal the sick, but he never worked a miracle in his own behalf. Selflessness. He f his first noted miracle was performed at a marriage feast in Cana when he turned water into wine. So what we're going to do now, we are going to look at the story of the marriage in Cana. In fact, we're going to broaden the scope a little. We're going to look at the story of Cana itself to see how we can learn to be a medical missionary the way that Christ did. So these are the verses we're going to look through. John chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 21. And um, we are actually going to read large portions of these. So if you have your Bible, please pull them out. Um, I would like for you to be able to read these as well. And we're going to go step by step through these stories to glean the principles of how Christ did his missionary work. So, the story of Cana. <clears throat> now, Cana was a city in Galilee, and it was blessed to be where Christ performed his first miracle, but also his second miracle. So it has some significance. It tells me that we probably should learn what happened here so that we can learn what we are to do today. So let's start with John chapter 2. Um, and we are going to read verses 1 and 2. And um, can I have somebody read that out for us? Okay, so we're familiar with the story, I think. Most of us are. What's happening here? There is a, a, a marriage. There's a wedding celebration. And we know that the weddings in that culture went for several days. And there was much feasting and rejoicing. It's very similar still today in many countries. Um, my, my own brother, when he... Uh, when he got married in India. It was several days of worth of, of celebrations. It's a wonderful time, wonderful experience. And who was here? We know Mary was there, Christ's mother. We know that Christ himself was invited. And we also know that his disciples were there. Now, of course, we are also told that Mary was part of the family 
that was hosting the celebration. So she was very much involved in the actual planning of the event. What about the disciples? Do you know which of the disciples were there? We don't know at this point if Christ had gathered all 12 of the disciples. Probably not the 70 at this point. It was still, of course, very early in his ministry. But if you look at John chapter 1, we can find out which of the disciples were there if we were to read verses 35 through 51. Now, I'm, we're not going to read those verses now, but there may have been some of the other disciples with him at this point, but we know for sure at least that Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel were with him, were, were already his disciples. So very likely these same individuals were here at the wedding. And we'll, we'll see how that connects at the end of our presentation. So Christ is there. His disciples have come with him. And his mother is there as well. The very first miracle of Christ was done among who? among his own family. Is that a clue to us for how we should be working, even with our health evangelism? Are there individuals in our own families who need help with health issues? Perhaps we ourselves need to improve in our own health lifestyle. So starting where we are, starting with those closest among us, and interestingly, isn't it often the most difficult to reach our own family members as well? So we gain a lot of skills and abilities by laboring for them. And of course, we already have that love for them, that desire for their good, which is a key ingredient. Manuscript 22, again, 1898, Christ came to this world to save perishing souls. He delights to impart his Holy Spirit to every soul who loved his presence. But listen to this. His first work is to preside in the family that every member may learn lessons of heavenly wisdom and love. When Christ has won the family, the family then becomes a powerful tool as well. And we'll see that play out again later. Also, consider that this was a social setting. This was not the church. This was not a health institute, the hospital. This was not the school. This was not where you go for a spiritual event. But Christ still made use of where he was. And in fact, the, the social settings are key places, opportune places for speaking words that draw people to Christ. Because when they see that we are associating with them as one with them, they're a lot more open to what we, we have to share with them. They want friends. Of course, there are limits to this, right? This doesn't mean that we purposely go into 
questionable locations um, for the, for the quote-unquote purpose of evangelism. There are, of course, limits to this, but we need to be social. In fact, Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 2, page 628, especially should those who have tasted the love of Christ develop their social powers, for in this way they may win souls to the Savior. You know, some of us were naturally born with the skill of being very social. Personally, I was not one of them. But we need to develop them. And we also need to ask the Lord to put us in situations sometimes so that those skills can be developed. It's very, very important. Going on, also in Mind, Character, Personality, page 623, Christ taught his disciples. This was part of his teaching, his training for them. Christ taught his disciples how to conduct themselves when in the company of others. Now remember, many of them were fishermen. You know, We know that Peter wasn't quite refined in his language. So many of them probably didn't have habits that were very inviting in social situations. So Christ had to teach them. Sometimes we ourselves have to consider, am I drawing people to me with my behavior or am I putting up barriers that push them away? We need to learn how to conduct ourselves in company. He instructed them in regard to the duties and regulations of true social life. Look at this. Which are the same as the laws of the kingdom of God? Wow. Is that powerful? That phrase alone should transform how we look at evangelism. Because when we are truly having the social uh, inviting behaviors that reflect God, we are reflecting the kingdom of God and drawing them to him. This is powerful. So, Christ was in a social setting, surrounded by those closest to him, already teaching, instructing, and then he finds out the need. So let's go back to John chapter 2 and read verse 3, if somebody could read that for us. Okay, very straightforward, very simple. What is the need here? The wine for the wedding feast. And we know that this was, of course, unfermented wine. So Christ is in this situation. He's being social. He's drawing people to him, enjoying companionship, teaching his disciples along the way. And then up comes this situation, this problem. We've run out of wine. Of course, you know, Christ said, well, I'm not here to give you wine. I'm here to, to you know, save your soul. So don't bother me with this. No. 
That's not what he said. He saw the need. And even though it wasn't their ultimate need of salvation, of having a relationship with him, he knew that unless he helped to meet that need, he wasn't going to be able to make way to, to reach them with their true needs. So something that we need to do is recognize that individuals do have what are called felt needs. These are the, 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 their desires or, or issues, situations that, that are preventing them from achieving even greater needs, the higher needs that we would think of of spiritual healing, of coming to Christ. So it's very important that we still meet these needs, these felt needs of theirs. Now, the balance, though, is that how do, we, how do we also reach into and get to their real needs? And we'll talk about that later, is how do we bridge from meeting felt needs to reading, meeting their real needs? We don't want to, to um, diminish the value of these felt needs as just tools because that might change the way we think about these individuals. We have to recognize that some of these felt needs are truly, truly needs, and that they need to be cared for. For example, a single mother of four children who has a part-time job here and then maybe three other jobs there, but she's still unable to provide for the care and the meals of her children, her, her children, you know, are, are practically raising themselves. Those are not necessarily tied to salvation issues. However, are they important? Aren't those ways that we can show compassion to this individual, to this family in need? Of course we want her to find peace in Christ. Of course we want her children to grow up to be young men and women serving the Lord, loving the Lord with all their heart, going to VBS and Sabbath school and, and participating in wonderful, enriching programs. But if we're not feeding them, if we're not loving them, if we're not showing them compassion, we're still not meeting their complete need for health and healing. So Christ is showing us that we must still meet the felt needs of individuals. We could look at the woman at the well, the story in John chapter 4, but I, I'm going to encourage you to look at that story as how Christ is distinguishing between felt needs of the woman and real needs, and how he transitions into, into, uh, from one to the other. So I'm going to encourage you to study that on your own. Perhaps if we have time later, we could do it together. Now, what was the method? How did Christ meet these needs? John chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. If um, I could have someone read those two verses, please. John 2, verses 6 and 7.
Okay. What are some of the principles we can gain here from Christ's method of, of reaching people? First of all, what did he do? He ordered brand new wine jugs. He placed an order. He used what was at hand. Absolutely. Many times the Lord has surrounded us by resources. We're just not seeing them. Maybe we're not aware of them. Maybe we, we just haven't looked at that resource as an actual resource. Maybe we thought it was a hindrance. Maybe it's an individual who, we, you know, we're just not sure if they're the ones that we want to work with. But if the Lord put them there, he's telling us, work with what you have. Work with what he has already given us. So, use what is available, use what's at hand, and sometimes that means thinking outside of the box, right? These containers were used for the purification rituals, but Christ is using it for a different purpose right now. I'm sorry? <laughs> well, Christ's power is, is powerful enough to sterilize and turn water into wine all at once. So he, he said, you know, this is what we've got. This is what I'm going to use. It's not what's the norm, but we have a need that's immediate. We have resources. We're going to fill it. And not only that, he fills to the brim. Right? Did you catch that little detail? Every single pot was filled to the brim. Christ's method is to take things to its full completion. He does not leave things half done. Amen. He does not leave us half done either. <laughs> There's nobody in his, in his kingdom who will be half-baked. We will all be full and complete. What else? Remember Mary's comment, <clears throat> her instructions to, to the servants? What does she say to them? Whatever he says, just do it. No matter how crazy it sounds, no matter how unreasonable it may be, no matter if those water pots have not been sterilized, <laughs> right? If he says it, do it. When we follow Christ's instructions... He put, puts in the power behind it. We don't have to worry about that. Now, we have to be very intelligent about this. We need to, when we read his words, we need to be very intelligent in how we read this. Remember, we are interpreting the gospel. This is a mighty task. This is not to be done lightly. This is not to be done for our own purposes. But how do we do that? Of course, we know with the Holy Spirit. We know we must be in prayer. We must ask him, Lord, tell me how to understand what you're saying. And he will make the way clear. So follow his instructions. And then what else? Did he go to the well and draw water himself? Or did he just 
uh, he could just speak and it would, the water would appear, right? He could have done those things. But no, he gives instructions to others. He involves others in the work. This is hugely important. And this is an area that I am specifically very, very passionate about, is, is to include those around you. Now, the servants who were working at the party, they probably, you know, were not, this is Christ's first miracle. They probably didn't think of him as the future Messiah or anything like that. But Christ, they were there, and he said, this is what I want you to do. Yes. Mary may have been in charge of certain aspects of providing there. Mm -hmm. So he worked through uh, the chain of command, if you will. Very good point. Very good point. Christ worked through the chain of command. Mary delegated, these are the servants that you have to do your task, and Christ used those who he who he was given. Very good point. Working through the channels is a very important way of making sure that our work that we do has a broader impact. And it gives it more stability as well, and it follows Christ's method. So that's plenty enough reason. Yes. Yes, yes. And the, Exactly, and that's one of the key reasons why we do need to include others, because we want them to receive a blessing as well. And not only that, but remember, Christ is in the process of discipling. He's training. Everything he was doing was for teaching purposes. So he was training and teaching and discipling. Very important that we do that. Involving others in the work. So use what's at hand. Think outside the box a little, follow the chain of command, and follow Christ's instructions, and work with those who are around you, teaching and educating. By the way, the best way to learn ourselves is to teach. We learn better as we teach others. Okay, going on in the story. The results. What happened? when Christ had finished this work. John 2, verses 8 through 10, if somebody could read that for us. What are the effects when Christ is part of the program? What happens when we include Christ? It's the best. There's a savor of life unto life that we ourselves could not give. Look at the reaction of the, the master of this event. His response itself, this is amazing. Have you considered the effect 
that our programs, that our events, that our ministry has on the community leaders around us? Does it affect them? Does it affect them positively or negatively? When, when all has been said and done, do they just sigh of relief? Or, or do they say, that was amazing. Could you do something like that again? Do they come to us inviting us? What is the effect? Now, in the programs that we do, we need to make sure things are done well. Things are done with, with scientific validity based on the foundation of the Word of God and the spirit of prophecy. But we also, it's possible to leave Christ out of that equation. But when he is invited in, and when we follow his instructions, when we allow him to, to use his power in the work, the effects are going to be even better than we could have done. Even though we do have scientific validity, even though we followed the principles of the Bible in the, in the spirit of prophecy, but if we leave Christ out of the equation, it's still not quite as powerful. And this, I think, is a very important distinction that any Adventist-run program should have compared to programs that any other organization would do, even other Christian organizations, maybe. Now, there are some great things out there that folks are doing, but there has to be something, you know, we're not necessarily going to win people over by our knowledge, our abilities. There has to be something else that wins them. And that's Christ. And the, the challenge sometimes is how do we do this, especially when we're dealing with a secular or a non-Christian group? Perhaps you're in a community of Jews, as my church actually is. Perhaps you're, you're working in, in an um, area where there are many Muslims or Buddhists or, or just atheists or secular individuals. How do we introduce Christ into these programs? Well, it has to be done very carefully, of course. In some areas, it's a matter of life or death, certainly. One thing I have found in my experiences, though, is that when you are upfront with people that you are a Christian organization, they know beforehand what they're getting. I'll give you one example. I was giving a presentation at a, um, a retirement facility for, for elderly individuals who were still very mobile, very independent, uh, and it was a health presentation. And I was told, there's one person who, as soon as you bring up anything religious, she walks out the door. She will just leave. She won't hear a single word you say after that. And so I was aware that that was going to be there, <clears throat> that she would probably be there. And so when I started, now I wasn't told who it was. They didn't point out the individual to me at the beginning. But I could just tell from behavior, you know, you learn to read people a little bit. And so I could just tell from behavior, I 
pinpointed who I thought it would be. But at the beginning of my presentation, I just said, you know, I want to share with you some principles for healthy living today. But I want to tell you up front that I am a Christian, and I have a very Christian perspective. But I want you to know that those are my beliefs, and I'm not pushing them on you. But I have found them to enhance my, my health and my lifestyle. And I want to be upfront with you. But please understand that you don't have to accept my, my Christian beliefs, but I promise you, you're going to learn something about improving your health. I started with something very simple like that. I did not belabor the point. I didn't go into doctrinal issues or, or tell them why I believe this and so forth. I just was very open with them. I went through the presentation, shared the health information, and at the very end, I just said the, a very simple appeal such as, you know, I really believe that God wants you to be healthy. And this is why I want to share this with you. Well, nobody walked out and left. So the question was, did that person even come that day? At the end, of course, we spent several, quite a bit of time talking and with, with the folks who were there, fellowshipping together. At the end, the, the folks who had invited me said, you know, that lady was there. And she stayed the entire time. And she told us, we, I want her back. Okay? Now, you're not going to have that response all the time. <laughs> and we have to be very careful. Sometimes we don't even have to give that statement as part of our presentation. But let's not sell Christ short. And let's be willing to speak words of life if he prompts us to. I did not go into that session planning to say those things, but I did go in very prayerfully. And I wanted the Lord to tell me, what do I need to say? So if we're very prayerful, if we ourselves are submitted to the Lord, he knows the words, and he's also preparing their hearts to receive it. So when Christ is in our programs, the effects will be much better than we could have done on our own. The ultimate goal, John 2, verse 11. <clears throat> and I'm going to read this verse. John 2, 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So, at this first miracle of Christ, what were the effects? Number one, it revealed his glory. And ultimately, that's what we want. All of our programs should be revealing God. They should be giving people a taste of who God is. Because too many people have a misunderstanding of God. And our purpose is really to reveal God to the world. Reveal his glory. Also, building faith. Remember, the disciples, they're the ones who believed on him. They were just learning who Christ was. They had just started to follow him. And their faith was built. 
So, your team members, those working with you, what is the effect on them? When the program is going on, as you're doing your ministry, what is the effect on the team members? Is their faith being built as well? Remember, we, God gives us work not only so that we can reach others, but because through that work, he's working in us. <laughs> we are not called to serve because we are capable of serving. We are called to serve so that he may show his power in our own lives. So, that is part one of the story of Cana. By the way, if you do a search for the word Cana in the Bible, it only occurs in these three passages. This is why we're looking at these three. So the second passage is in John chapter 2. And let's quickly go through this, verses 46 through 54. I'm sorry, John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. And we're going to go through this one a little bit more quickly. John 4. <clears throat> Let's read verse 45 and 46, if someone could read that for us. Okay, so this is the second time Cana is mentioned. And what's going on here? By the way, let's actually review a little. Let's rewind a little. John chapter 2, Christ performed the miracle in Cana. John chapter 3 is the story of who? Nicodemus. That's right. Nicodemus comes to Christ at night. John chapter 4 begins with the story of the woman at the well. So Christ goes to Samaria outside of the Jewish nation to minister to the Samaritans. He met a woman and he met her needs and she led others to Christ. And now he's on his way back. He's come back to his own area, back to Galilee, and he comes back to Cana and look at what happened because of what was done before. Those individuals were there at the feast, as we just read. They had witnessed his miracle, and they hear that he's back again, and so they come back for more. With our programs that we do, sometimes the tendency is that we become event-based, that's often the tendency. We plan one event here, and then we go somewhere else and do another event there, and then we go back to another place and do an event. We, we may spread ourselves around a lot. Now, there's a need for that because there's so many places that need to be reached for Christ, but there's something about going back to where you were before, where you've planted some seeds. Perhaps it's not 
uh, our calling to be the one going back there, but do we make sure that somebody is going back there? Are we leaving some kind of a framework behind us, some kind of, uh, or maybe another team, connect with the local church? Who, who's gonna carry on that work there? We need to go back because people have tasted the Lord and they want more. So we do need to go back to where we've worked before. This is about building trust and building relationships over time. Again, those are very, very important for actually being able to win people to Christ, that trust and relationships, yes. Yes. Jesus' first miracle, definitely a social event, and mm-hmm. one of the very few miracles he performed, that didn't need somebody. Yeah. He didn't do it simply to get attention, to get their attention, and to get him to listen to them, which is rare. Most of his miracles were to get their attention so they would listen to what he had to do, which was his primary purpose. That's right. It's very important that we have a balanced ministry. There's opportunity for social events. There's opportunity for real, you know, this is hardcore evangelism. Opportunity for Bible study, for personal time as well. We need to make sure that what we're doing is very balanced in all those areas. Yes. You know, if you really think about it, God says, I'll fill your mouth with good things and renew your strength like an eagle. That wine works on the serotonin 1 gene, serotonin 3 genes. It works on the anti-aging genes. It brings healing to the people. And so I believe that there was a silent miracle of healing that they were <laughs> Okay, okay. Certainly we can talk about the benefits of a healthy diet <laughs> and that Christ provided only the best of quality of nutri- nutrition because he knows the physiology behind it, right? Um, Absolutely, great, great principles. Okay, let's go back to John chapter four. So, building the trust, developing relationships in a community is very, very important. Now, this is especially important in certain population groups. For example, Native Americans. Um, If you talk with those who are working among Native Americans, they have a very difficult time with that trust simply because there's a history. And so they need to know over a long period of time that you're there for their good and not for your good. Um, I Also, again, my time in Guam, um, the, the clinic there in Guam, I think, has been there for about 40 years or so, and they have developed a very good relationship with the community there. The, they really appreciate the fact that these doctors from all the way in the United States come there and spend time there working for them, serving for them. To them, it shows that we care about them. And oftentimes I was asked, actually just before I left, so, so they're taking you just to another place now to be a missionary? Is that what they're doing? You know, they just, they have this conception that the Adventist church, or the, this thinking that the Adventist church sends out missionaries just to serve people. 
Now that's not a bad way to think of the church, right? We're sending out missionaries just to serve them. So we need to build these long-term relationships. Again, that opens their hearts, gives us opportunities to serve them with the word of life. Okay, John 4, 46 and 47. This was a nobleman or a, a, an officer that came to Christ. And this is another important aspect of health ministry. Sometimes it's a little bit easier to reach the lower socioeconomic status. It's a little bit more difficult to reach those who are more wealthy, but we must reach them. In fact, Mrs. White says that very clearly. Um, Medical Mission Ministry, page 243, those who will exercise their God-given ability for the conversion to the truth of the intellectual, the refined, and the world-absorbed wealthy class are doing a good and essential work. Essential meaning, it must be done. Here is a field of labor that should not be neglected. We should come close to this class, for I know that many of them are soul burdened. They long for something they know not what. Now in, in John chapter 2, they knew their need. They knew exactly what they needed. But here comes a wealthy, educated, well-refined man who does not know his need. But he comes looking for something. Let's read John 4, verse 48. Actually, let's read verse 47 and 48. Somebody could read that for us. So the man comes asking, please heal my son. But listen to what is written in Desire of Ages 198. The nobleman must realize his need before he would desire the grace of Christ. Again, here's a difference between felt needs and real needs. He came feeling the need for his son's healing, but Christ wasn't going to leave it there. At the wedding... That's what Christ filled. But here, Christ challenges the man. We need to know when it's appropriate to challenge the people we are working with. When to say, okay, here's, here's what you need. And when to push it. Now, this comes through, again, the Holy Spirit working in us. We cannot do this on our own thinking. We need to sometimes challenge their thinking, challenge their desires. You know, for example, um, just a very simple example, someone who's trying to stop smoking. 
I, I, need, to, I need to go out there. I, I just need to get one more puff. I, I just need it. Well, you could say, okay, go ahead. Or you could say, well, do you really need that? Or let's maybe just take a walk instead. Could we, could we do something together, you know, or just change the topic, distract them. Oftentimes, actually, when it comes to breaking from addictions, it's about distracting people from that addiction that's, that's pulling at them at that moment. So sometimes we need to challenge what they feel is their need. So going on Desire of Ages, this courtier re represented many of his nation. They were interested in Jesus from selfish motives. They hoped to receive some special benefit through his power, and they staked their faith on the granting of this temporal favor. Again, those felt needs. But they were ignorant as to their spiritual disease and saw not their need of divine grace. Sometimes someone who's recovering from, from smoking addiction Sometimes what we need to tell them is, you need to become dependent on Christ. You need the power of Christ right now. That is the only way you will be free. Sometimes we need to say those words to them. We need to say it with love, much love. Yeah. Sorry, let me come closer. Does it apply? Does it apply to medications as well? Um, medications, okay, of course, you have to be very careful when it comes to medications. Some are medically necessary, of course, but you're probably talking about um, uh, addiction to medicines that, that they no longer need. Um, there are physiological things that happen with those medical addictions, and so, Yes, the power of Christ is ultimately needed, but there may be some therapies that they need as well to actually break the physiological addictions. So we do bring Christ into everything, but we, he also gives us resources to help with the other things as well. Okay, so let's not forget the, what's happening in the body that must also be broken from that addiction. Okay, <clears throat> and John four forty nine. This is the, the nobleman's plea. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Again, we need to listen to needs that are being expressed. We really need to be open and hearing what are they really wanting. What what is what is their their uh, driving force, their driving factors. This gives us the clues of how we can help them. The words or behaviors that people have reveal their needs, also demonstrates their readiness to change. We'll talk about readiness to change later this afternoon. Expresses desire to learn more, and then reveals their openness to spiritual need as well. So it's very important that we're in tune to the person we're trying to reach. You know, we need to look outside of the, we need to look at the person not as just 
I'm going to save you for the Lord. We, which is important, of course. We want everybody to come to know Christ. But we need to look at them as an individual in need. Just as we are. We need to look at them as an individual. And how can we help them? That is one of the, the big keys about doing effective health, health evangelism is that we are treating them as individuals, not just as people to go through our programs and classes and so forth. How do I reach this one person? And so we must be very in tune to their words, to their behaviors. Because sometimes we miss the opportunities that the Lord is opening up in their heart. We may be so busy <laughs> making sure the program is running that we neglect the person that we're doing it for. Okay, and then these last verses, verse four, verses 50 to 53, I'm going to read these quickly for us. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend, and they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. What are those words that are rep repeated there? Did you catch them? Thy son liveth. Those exact words are said three times. Words are powerful. What do you think the father felt when Christ first said those words to him? Can you imagine? Put yourself in his place. He came because his son was at the point of death. And here Christ says, thy son liveth. What a transformation that would have worked in his heart. And then as he comes close to home, the servants run out to him and they say, Thy son liveth. It's the exact same words. Who put those words in, his in their mouth? What more energizing fervor came into his soul at that point? Three times. That's right, that's right. At the words of Christ, there was power, first of all. When Christ spoke those words, healing began immediately. It began in the man's heart, not just in the boy's body. The words are powerful. Isaiah 54 the Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Our programs are not just about putting together good, good presentations and so forth. We must choose our words very carefully. Not only in our presentations, but certainly also in our social interactions with the individuals. Words have power.
And as you were saying, oh, let's go back. Very important that ultimately what we want to do is win people to the word of God. Because once they get here, then God has them. <laughs> he takes over. It's now up to him in his word to speak to them. Leading people to the word of God is probably the most important aspect of any ministry. Because now they're hearing from God directly. here okay um, I'll just give a quick example from Guam and then we'll take a short break in a couple minutes um, in one of our health programs we had a, a very uh, I, I believe she was a a senator at one point um, who was attending our health programs and it was a four-week program and uh, every day at the beginning and end of class, we would pray, thinking that, you know, we're just doing what we should do. <laughs> we're inviting God's presence there. She, um, she, she came from a Catholic background, but at the end of the program, as I had a one-on-one -on -one consultation with her, she said to me, you know, when you were praying at the beginning, at the end of each day, I, I went home and I started thinking, why don't I have religion in my life every day? You're doing it there and you're just praying. Why, why don't I have, why, why aren't I doing something like that every day? And she said, I started reading my Bible five minutes a day. She did not start coming to church. She did not get baptized. She didn't want Bible studies, but she said she started reading her Bible. And to me, that was a victory because now she's going to God rather than to any human being, right? So leading people to the word of God is one of the greatest victories, maybe the greatest victory that we can have. Okay, um, I'm going to skip these. <clears throat> and let's just look very briefly at our very last story of Cana. John 21, verses 1 and 2. And we're just going to very quickly finish this up. John 21, verses 1 and 2. If somebody could read that for us. Okay, this is the story after Christ had risen from the dead. He had gone back up to heaven, but came back down to spend the last days with his disciples, teaching them. And now here, some of the disciples, seven of them, are again on the Sea of Galilee, right by Canaan, or, or well, we don't know exactly the location, but they're there fishing. And they... 
they are just out there all night, spent, all, of course, they're, one, they're lifelong fishermen, right? But they catch nothing. And then there's a, a man standing on the shore who says, did you catch any fish? And they said, no, we've been out here all night, not a single fish. And he says, put your net on the other side of the boat. And what happens? It's full. Does that story sound familiar? And so one of them says to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps, jumps into the water, swims to his Lord. Does that sound familiar? Did that happen before? And then, and then Christ calls them all out to the shore and says, look, I've prepared food for you. And he feeds them with loaves of bread and fish. Does that sound familiar? It's amazing that Christ, Christ does the same thing that he had done in his ministry before. Those stories refreshed in their disciples this new experience of the same old miracles refreshed in the disciples faith and courage repeat and enlarge we know this as a prophetic um, principle that in in the book of daniel especially we see the principle of repeat and, and enlarge to give us understanding we also need to repeat and enlarge sometimes we think that people are going to learn all about the the physiology of your digestive system after one 60-minute lecture with 200 slides probably not going to happen <laughs> they're going to need to hear this message again we need to reinforce we need to tell them again lovingly because it takes a while for us all of us to learn something and so we need to repeat and enlarge god is very patient with us as he teaches us he tells us over and over again we also need to continue to meet their felt needs they were out there fishing all night with nothing they had no food in the morning to show for all their effort christ met that need still by just using fish and bread. Be consistent. Christ was very, very consistent. Very important that we are also consistent. What we preach, we must practice. What we teach, we must reteach. And use similar teaching tools, but sometimes in a new way that may help them gain new understanding. Again, study the, the way Daniel reveals to us the, the prophecies. I'm going to end here. <clears throat> Desire of Ages, page 810. Vividly, the disciples recalled the scene beside the sea when Jesus had bidden them follow him. They remembered how, at his command, they had launched out into the deep and had let down their net, and the catch had been so abundant as to fill the net even to breaking. Then Jesus had called them to leave their fishing boats and had promised to make them fishers of men. 
It was to bring this scene to their minds and to deepen its impression that he had again performed the miracle. His act was a renewal of the commission to the disciples. It showed them that the death of their master had not lessened their obligation to do the work he had assigned them. He repeated it so that they would be reinforced with their calling to now be a servant. And as we serve others, as we reach them with the health message, we must also remind them that they have a responsibility now to continue the work. One of the most effective ways of getting people to understand what you're teaching them is by giving them an opportunity to teach. Another brief example from Guam. One of our, at the end of our lifestyle class, um, one of the sessions, what I decided to do is we had a potluck as our celebration, at the last day of class. We had haystacks. They, they had no idea what haystacks was, but we had haystacks. And so we had a list of the different uh, parts of haystacks and who would bring the lettuce and who would bring the, the chips and, and the beans and avocado and so forth. And so we told them, that's your assignment. Go out to the store, figure out which one's, which one's the best bag of chips to buy. Bring, bring the, your veggies, you know, bring it all together. And then I didn't tell them this, but that day in class, I said, okay, now that you've brought your things, I want you to come up to the front of class and tell us what you, how you prepared what you made or how you chose what to buy. And so what we were doing was reinforcing that with them, they, the person who brought the, the chips. Well, I looked at the food label and I was looking at the salt content and this one was the lowest. And so they are reinforcing what they learned, telling us what they practiced, and now teaching others. Very simple way of helping them to now take what they learned and begin teaching others. The person who had avocados, had an avocado tree. And so they just told us, well, I went to the backyard and I gathered the avocado. I mean, they made it very elaborate on how they chopped up avocados. You know, but giving them the opportunity of teaching what they've been learning. These simple principles from the story of Cana are tools for us that God has given us, that Christ has, has demonstrated for us, so that we could be more effective in our health evangelism. And so I'm just so thankful that he's given us the answers. He's told us how to do it. And now he says, go and do likewise. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful that you have given everything to us. And Lord, you are calling us to serve in the way that you have served. And you are calling us to learn more of you so that our service may be even more beautiful. So I pray, Father, that you will continue to teach us, continue to be in the work, help us to learn from our successes, from our failures. Lord, help us to do the work of a medical missionary so that we can glorify you 
and bring others into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.